Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, how are we doing this morning, Covenant family? Good to see you all. Glad to see so many of you survive the last two weeks of winter. Feels like only about six more months, right? This has been a long one, but I'm so glad to see so many of you back and joining us again. And for those of you who are watching from home, my name's Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a delight for me to stand up here and open God's Word today. What an awesome, encouraging, but real message we have to look at today. And so if you will join me in Revelation chapter 2. Last week, we began a series called Misdirection. The emphasis being this, that sometimes satanic distractions come into our lives, particularly our spiritual walk, and, and they can distract us to the point of, of getting, off, getting us off mission short term, but they sometimes can, can settle in, they can, they can really take root in a way that, that moves distraction to just full-on misdirection, and it can leave an individual completely off course for the rest of their life in service to Jesus. And we also know because of what we see happening to these seven churches in Revelation that this sort of phenomenon can happen to entire churches. And if we want to learn how to avoid that, we need to look and, and at these churches, stand on their shoulders, see some of the challenges that they dealt with, and learn from them how they overcame those challenges and those temptations toward misdirection. And today, we look at this subject. Last week, it was fundamentalism, the idea of replacing rules with actual relationship with Jesus, with replacing just mere knowledge of the Bible with the actual leading of the Holy Spirit. The two are in sync, but they are not the same thing. Today, we look at another subject, the subject of safety and security. I want to be safe. I want to be secure. In 2016, two authors, Tracy Brown and Michael Hanlon, wrote a book called Playing by the Rules. The subtitle was How Obsession with Safety is Putting All of Us at Risk. Uh, the book contains a catalog of well-intentioned but probably ill-informed safety measures to protect everybody. Now, to, to be fair, I grew up in the generation that made homemade ramps off of which we would jump used green machines with broken brakes. Okay, so, so I'm one of those guys, and, and you don't want to go to that extreme either, all right? I'm not talking about recklessness or foolishness, but <laughs> probably in response to my generation's foolishness, there was this overreaction to sort of wrap our children in bubble wrap. And now it's sort of graduated up into adults, and it, it was really just implemented, things implemented solely out of fear. And the example that these two authors come back to time and time and time again is airports in a post 9-11 era. Think about all the things you got to do just to get on a plane today. You got to take your shoes off. You have to take your belt off and then hold up your pants while you walk through. And then you've got to listen to TSA agents bark at you because no matter what they tell you about how consistent the rules are, they're all different. Trust me. I've been in, I told a TSA agent once, I said, I've been in more airports than you. They did it different in Nashville than they're doing it here, okay? They really did. And so it kind of leaves you confused, and you do all these things, and you go through these scanners, and you let them take pictures of you, and you do all of that stuff, right? Why? Because it's going to make us safer. You surrender nail clippers. 
You surrender any bottle of liquid that's greater than four ounces. One time I'd forgotten about that. I was in Vancouver. I was going to buy Amy this, and I did. I bought her this beautiful, regrettably though, 12-ounce bottle, glass bottle, shaped like a maple leaf, had Canadian maple syrup in it. I said, I'm going to earn some brownie points with Mrs. Rainey. Totally forgotten. I know what some of you are thinking. Why didn't you check it? Because I didn't want sticky clothes for the rest of my life. That's why I didn't check it. And so I, I, I put it in my, my carry-on baggage, and I'll never forget that THA agent pulled that out, looked at me, really stern look. Sir, out of interest in national security, you're not allowed to have anything more than 12 ounces. Literally turned around in front of me and dropped it in the trash because apparently, I mean, I'm not smart enough to do this, but apparently you can bring down a freaking 737 with a 12-ounce bottle of Canadian maple syrup. And so I'm like, I don't even know what just happened. But here's the deal. You go through all of that, right? You ever notice what happens after you go through all of that and you actually get on the plane? If you're, next time it happens, if you're anywhere near an exit row, just take a look. All right, look upwards. Because somewhere near the back of that exit row, you know what you're going to find after having gone through all of that? An easily accessible axe. I'm not even making this up. Like, that's the kind of thing. What is this? It's, it's this sort of in, inconsistent, sort of irrational. I took my son Seth with me to Arizona several years ago. I was doing some work out there. We extended our stay one day so that together we could travel from Phoenix, where I was doing most of my work, down to the town of Tombstone. And that was where we walked those old streets, historic streets, visited the silver mine, uh, watched the reenactment of the, the infamous gunfight at the OK Corral. We had ourselves a ball that day. And the next day, we came back to Phoenix. We're going through security at Sky Harbor Airport. And this was back before all of the Fourth Amendment stuff had overridden TSA's approach to the backscatter scanners. Do you remember those? They literally took a naked picture of you. And so he motioned for my son, who at the time was like six years old. Well, I had... I had Seth by the scruff of the neck, by his collar, and, he, and I had told him, do what they tell you to do, but he started to move, and he couldn't move because I had him, and I just looked at the officer, and I'm like, no, uh-uh, not going to happen, and, he, he and there was a confrontation, and outwardly, I'm looking at the officer going, in any other context, this would be child pornography. You take all the pictures you want of me. You are not doing this to my boy. Inside, I'm thinking, I'm going to jail today. I'm going to jail. He finally relented. He led us into this, this sort of a closed room. We went back through there. We, I, was, I was very respectful, as you always should be with somebody in, in, in authority like that. They're just doing their job. But they searched us high and low. They did all kinds of swabbing. They did all, I mean, everything. Finally let us go. We get to the terminal, and the, my then six-year-old son comes out of his pockets. You all know what those little plastic bang caps, those little eight-shot things? Well, those things were laying all over the street in Tombstone, and I didn't notice that my son was picking them up and shoving his pockets full of them. He's like, look what I found, Daddy. So after going through all of that, my six-year-old made it to the terminal with gunpowder residue all over his body. You know, what do you call it? There's a reason we, we term things like that security theater, because it makes you feel safe. And there are some things that they have done that have actually made us safer. Some of those things maybe not so much. And there's one reason that things like that stay in place. Irrational fear. Fear can cause you to do some ridiculous stuff, can it? Fear can really paralyze you and jack you up and mess you up. And one of the lessons that we're going to learn this week is that fear can also lead you to be disobedient to Jesus. It can lead to unfaithfulness. Again, don't be reckless. 
Don't be stupid. We're going to talk about some of that today. Don't tempt the Lord your God with things that you know. Don't be selfish. Do serve Jesus. And don't let fear keep you from serving Jesus. And sometimes serving Jesus involves putting yourself at risk. Sometimes it involves going into a violent context where like an inner city or another place like another country where God has called you to go. And what we're going to see today is that the call is to have courage and don't value safety and security over the call of God. And to demonstrate to us why this is so serious, here are the things that actually characterize the unredeemed. Look at this, this passage in Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. John says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Notice what's at the top of that list. That always baffled me a little bit. That at the top of this list is not sexual immorality, it's not sorcery, it's not even idolatry, it's cowardice. Australian missiologist Alan Hirsch, I think correctly, notes that the most deadly distraction to the American church is an obsession with safety and security, with comfort and convenience. And this, if we're not careful, can translate into entire church cultures. It can even affect how you hire. Let me give you a little background story to that. Uh, we're coming up on two years of service for Pastor David Lott, our executive pastor. So when you see him out here in the foyer, be sure to thank him for his service. Uh, he has been such a blessing to me, and I know he has been to you. But we were, when we were in the hiring process, there were a couple of guys, Dave was one of them, that we were looking at right at the end. And, and about three months before that, there was this other individual that we were looking at, and we brought Dave in, and right before him, we brought this other guy in. We flew him in. They visited with us on a Sunday morning. This was pre-COVID, so it was a packed house. Y'all would have never known that they were in here. We did interviews. We introduced this other individual to our staff. And what I, everything I'm about to tell you I did with him, we also did with Pastor Dave. And I thought, one of the things we need to do is, is we need to take a little test here. Not a written test, not a fill-in-the-bubble SAT sort of thing. I need to get both these dudes in my truck, and we need to take a ride. And we took a ride through the roughest, toughest parts of the city of Martinsburg. And while we were going through there, I told him about the drug issues. I told him about children, grandchildren, certain playgrounds you should probably keep them away from because there's probably some used needles in the ground. I told him about the fact that one out of every 1,200 people in Berkeley County dies from an opioid overdose. Coming back through Shepherdstown, I, we, we looked at how beautiful and how quaint it is, but I talked about the spiritual darkness that has so captured so much of that town. Wonderful, beautiful people created in God's image that Jesus died to save that are not our enemy, but a lot of spiritual darkness, some of which causes them to view us as a pariah because views that we have on everything from, from holiness to sexual immorality to how to get to heaven and all these other things may make us seem like the enemy, but it is our call in this environment to fulfill our mission to grow passionate followers of Jesus Christ, to love them and to serve them. And it's our job as pastors to lead the way. One of those men, back in early or late 2018, freaked out a little bit going through Martinsburg. Kept asking me questions about whether the school systems were safe Wrote me a follow-up email, four paragraphs 
about wondering whether or not this was the right environment because it seemed kind of dangerous. The other one is our current executive pastor because we ain't got time for cowardly pastors. We don't. That's, that's not trying to put anybody down. It's just we knew what we had. And you got to be careful, though, see, because if, you're, if your culture is baptized in obsession with safety and security, that's exactly where you are. That, that won't even be a big deal. It won't. And so that's where we were. We live in a culture filled with churches. Well, they kind of sound like this. Look at this quote from Alan Hurst. Stuck in the stifling status quo, our middle-class culture has turned many churches into a country club atmosphere where the practice of civil religion affirms everything in my life. How many times have you heard it on the radio or seen it on a billboard, an advertisement for a church, and among the, the taglines you saw this, safe for the whole family? You really think that's Jesus' highest priority? I mean, Really? You, do you think that's what he's really calling us to? It would not seem so when we look at texts like the one that we're going to look at today. Today we're going to learn from a church that refused to give in to that distraction. It was a church that was in a city that 2,000 years ago was called Smyrna, ancient Smyrna, no longer exists, but in its place right there on the Aegean Sea, beautiful city called Izmir, a Turkish city. It's about a 55-minute drive north from Ephesus, the church and the city that we looked at last week. And, and so the most likely scenario about this church's origins is that there were Christians from Ephesus who became followers of Jesus. They moved up into this city. More people followed Jesus. Apparently also in the background of this text is there was this large number of Jewish people in the city and the, the presentation of the gospel at Smyrna caused a fissure, a sharp division in that city between those who were Jews who decided Jesus is our Messiah and we're going to follow him and those who refused Jesus as the Messiah. And that latter group began to turn against their neighbors because of their faith and to persecute them. Meanwhile, John is imprisoned on an island called Patmos and he writes this letter called Revelation and he trains a man by the name of Polycarp. He then sends Polycarp from Ephesus up the road to Smyrna to serve as the pastor of this new church. And throughout his decades of faithful ministry to this church, Polycarp was arrested. He was falsely tried. He was sentenced to death for refusing to help the emperor Domitian, who had declared himself to be a god. And when they brought him to his place of execution, his infamous last words were these, for 86 years I have served Jesus Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? It's been wisely said that leaders don't, that they reproduce themselves. This is true whether you're in education whether you're in business, it's certainly true if you're a leader in the faith community. You don't raise up what you teach. You raise up who you are. That's what gets reproduced. And so as we examine the flourishing faith of the church at Smyrna, you're like, Pastor, how do you know it was flourishing? Because between them and Philadelphia, they're the only two out of the seven that get absolutely no rebuke. Jesus commends them. Jesus says nothing to critique them. Jesus gives them some hard truth that we're going to see in just a moment, but Jesus encourages them. And as we examine that flourishing faith, we start to see the source. It was their pastor. It was this man named Polycarp. And you may ask 2,000 years later, 
because I know I do, how, how do they endure this? Well, Jesus has a fourfold message to us through this church to anyone tempted by distraction from his mission, by an obsession over safety and security. Here's lesson number one. Be encouraged. Jesus knows. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So there's a couple of things he points to here with a single source. The first is tribulation. This is extended, prolonged, deepening troubles. You ever had weeks like that, months like that maybe? Something happens, then something else happens. You think it's just going to be a blip on the radar. Next thing you know, you're nine months in and there's been sickness compiled on top of job loss, compiled on top of, of financial troubles, compiled on top of maybe marital troubles or the kids giving you a hard time. One thing right after another, it's like some snowball effect and it keeps going and it seems like it keeps getting worse. And what's interesting to me is how so often that experience correlates to your level of faithfulness to Jesus. The number of families in this church that I have prayed for, that I have been in their homes, that I have walked with, that I have cried with, who are faithful to Jesus. I'm talking at the end of the age. These people are at the front of the line. They are far ahead of their pastor, and they suffer. And it never seems to end. And even their pastor sometimes goes, goes what? why? Why? Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever looked toward heaven and said, Lord, if you're trying to persecute somebody, I got a whole other list over here. I know we're not supposed to think things like that, are we? But why those people? Why those people? And so there's a little warning, even in this encouragement. Faithfulness not only doesn't keep you from tribulation, oftentimes it increases it. And that tribulation introduces something else into their lives, poverty. And, and when he describes the poverty here, it's a, it's a form of, of destitution. This isn't, well, man, I, I lost my job and I'm having to collect halftime during the pandemic and so I had to turn in my company iPhone and now I have to settle for a droid kind of poverty. This is, I'm having to decide between groceries and medication. I don't know what I'm going to do, poverty. And the source of all of it, John identifies it here as the synagogue of Satan. Satan, in this, in this account, working through people and systems to bring about this pain intentionally upon this church. In, the, in this case, it, it was upstanding religious people. That's the way they would have been viewed. And they're making the lives of these Christians miserable. And, and so into that reality, Jesus speaks two words. He says, first of all, something that sounds really crazy. He says, but you're rich. What? Like, what are you talking about? Well, to get the gist of his meaning, let's go 55 minutes back down south to Ephesus and let's read some words that Paul had written earlier to that church about their riches. He says in Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Here's what Jesus is saying. Don't let this temporary poverty in this world, tribulation in this world, misdirect you. Don't let it make you ask, what am I doing wrong? And number two, know that in the middle of your tribulation and poverty, I see you. Some of you may need to hear that today. Jesus is saying, regardless of what you have gone through, I have not 
forgotten you. I see and I am there for every point of pain. Which has to be encouraging because life can be awfully dark sometimes, can't it? To the point that we wonder, where is God? When is this going to be over? When can I, when can I get some relief? And some of you have been there. And in times like these, the only way to endure is to remember that Jesus is there. He may not do what you would prefer. He may allow things that you would rather he didn't, but he is there and he sees and he knows and he has not forgotten you. Be encouraged. Number two, in the middle of that encouragement and on the basis of that encouragement, be faithful because Jesus is watching. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Now, I... If I'm already undergoing the kinds of things that he's describing in Smyrna, these words are going to freak me out a little bit. What, more's coming? He's moved into the future tense already. Don't be afraid. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here's what's coming you be faithful. And by the way, this is not the first time Jesus has, has uttered a similar message to one of his disciples. If you'll remember in the end of Luke's gospel, he says something very, very similar to Peter. He says to, to, to Peter, Satan has asked my permission to sift you like wheat. Satan wants to make your life hell. And I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. You mean... You didn't tell him no? Like, I would have preferred if you told him no. 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 This is code for Satan. Satan asked by me. He's on a short lead. He, he is, Martin Luther said the devil is God's devil. Okay? But, but here's the thing. Sometimes God grants permission. And this is what he says. I am praying for you that your faith will not fail. What's he saying to Peter in that moment? I'm with you. And I'm watching. And to the church at Smyrna, he says, more is coming at the hands of your enemy. That's the big idea behind the 10 days language. There's all this debate that's going on for centuries about whether that's a literal 10, 24-hour day period or if it's just symbolic of an extended period of time. Either way, it's intended to communicate that this is temporary. It's temporary in contrast to an eternal reward of following Jesus. And so two challenges come out of this. Number one, don't be afraid. And number two, be faithful to the point of death. Because by the way, you follow Jesus and that's what he did. Philippians chapter two says, he was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And then he tells us in Matthew's gospel, a servant is not above his master. A disciple is not above his teacher. If it happened to me, you need to get prepared because it's probably going to happen to you, be faithful. See, God sometimes calls us into dangerous environments, dangerous circumstances. Two postures are required if you're going to be obedient in that moment. One is courage, and the other is faithfulness. Or we might even say consistent courage. It doesn't mean you can't feel angst. It doesn't mean that if you have an emotional reaction that's like, oh my gosh, what's about to happen, that somehow you're in sin. I can't remember which World War II veteran it was, but it was one of the guys that helped stormed, storm Normandy Beach. If you know anything at all about the history of D-Day, June 6, 1944, you know that was not 
it really wasn't a day at the beach, even though it was, right? One of the guys who said, everybody used to tell me that, that, that courage was about fearlessness, and one of the things I learned on Normandy Beach is, no, it's not about fearlessness. Courage is about when you are afraid, but you go anyway. Because you know this is what I have to do. Courage and faithfulness. Be faithful. Always do the right thing because Jesus is watching. Now, we, we have an example here. What, what do we do? How is it that we take precautions that we need to take here as a church body? And I've talked about this before, but I think it bears repeating because we've got a few more months of this probably. So that we can be faithful to Jesus. See, the, the mitigation measures we've, we've put in place here are not about being afraid of a virus. It's not about that. It's also not about keeping people from getting sick. It's about us being responsible for a spread. Because here's a spread we shut down. That's how it works. Did you know your staff have not been in the same room with each other for an extended period of time since Thanksgiving, since before Thanksgiving? You know why that is? I, it's not because I'm trying to keep them from getting sick. They're going to do what they're going to do with themselves, with their families or whatever. It's because if somebody brings that into the room and we all get sick and we all go down, and guess what happens to covenant? So we do what we do so that we are not useless to the community when the community needs us. All right? Now that brings me to the other side. Sometimes you protect yourself not so that you won't die, but so that you can be faithful we got a cold weather shelter coming up. We've already had one where we brought the homeless. It, you know what? It's, it, it, it doesn't matter. The virus doesn't care. It's still here, but the homeless are too. And it's still in the teens outside at night. And the Lord said to clothe the naked and to provide shelter to those who don't have it and to feed those who don't have it and to give water to those who don't have it. And so we've got some some courageous men and women who understand, hey, I, we're going to take mitigation measures. Even there, we're going to mask up. We're going to do our thing. But we're going to serve, and we're going to serve knowing full well. Look, I'm, I'm at greater risk and greater exposure here spending the night with my homeless neighbors than I would be if I had just stayed home. But we keep ourselves well as best we can so that in those moments, we can be the blessing to our community that Jesus calls us to be. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. All this concern over safety and security, all this concern over our kids' safety and security, and, and here's the bottom line, that, that all of us recognize we are all going to die. Death, one way or another, is absolutely certain from now until that moment comes jesus is watching to see if you are faithful if you, are you faithful be encouraged to understand that jesus knows your suffering be faithful jesus is watching number three be hopeful jesus will reward you look at verse 11 he who has an ear let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We need to unpack that phrase a little bit. So let me explain it this way. You cannot avoid dying, but you can avoid, and by the blood of Jesus, you will avoid, if you follow him, the second death. Death 
is the separation of your soul from your body. The second death is the eternal separation of your soul from the God who created you. And Jesus tells us here, if you're faithful to me, you're still going to die. Here's the good news. You can die well. You can die well, and you can die rewarded. I wonder how many people in front of me, how many people have a protective instinct of themselves or people they love, and God, God has called them or someone they love to the nations, maybe as a career. Or maybe just to be a team member here. Join us in Vietnam, go to Baltimore. By the way, all that stuff's in the works right now. Because we're coming out from under all this, and when we get to a point where, where everything's where it needs to be here, and simultaneously our partners in Baltimore say, we're ready, come on, we're going to re-engage there and in a number of other places. And some of those places are not entirely safe. How many times has a desire for security trumped your desire for obedience. Now, I, and I say that, listen, I, I'm not saying this from an ivory tower. I put my own wife on a plane twice a year to go to Southeast Asia. Furthermore, I, I love you all. Not as much as I love her. I hope you all understand that, but you get it, right? I, I love you guys. There's a protective instinct. Just Those closest to me will tell you how protective that instinct is because they were the ones conversing, including so many of our medical team, conversing with me when we were considering how to open back up and how to do it safely. I love you. I don't want anybody to unnecessarily or foolishly get sick or perish. But when it comes to the mission of God, here's what I know. I can't promise you everything's always going to be okay. I can't do it. In fact, Based on the Bible, I can, with a great amount of certainty, tell you it's probably not going to be okay. But I can give you hope on that same Bible that reward is coming. Don't get distracted by fear or by insecurity. Be hopeful. Jesus will reward you. Here's the final thing. And I, I love this best of all. In fact, without, without verse 8, none of this really matters a whole lot. In fact, it might, not, it might not even be true without verse 8. But verse 8 tells us this. In all of that faithfulness, in all of that attempt to not be misdirected, be confident because Jesus is greater than death. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. See, so we're... we're we're not sticklers for bodily resurrection just because we're trying, just because just we're picky theologically. We actually believe this happened in history, and we believe it absolutely changes everything, including what our disposition ought to be when it comes to facing danger in the name of this Jesus who rose from the dead. And let me show you what, what I think is so beautiful about these words. The word angel can also be translated messenger here in all likelihood is speaking of Polycarp, the pastor. And the pastor's not the, he's not the only guy called to this kind of life, but his role, mine and the other men who lead with me, is to model it. And, and so this message for the whole church 
is first given to Polycarp. Let me, let me, let me, let me tease out the end of Polycarp's life for you because he's killed for his faith. And Jesus tells him this, death is coming for you, but that's as bad as it's going to get. And you don't need to fear death because I conquered that too. So follow me and be faithful. Yeah, one of the spooky linguistic things about this town called Smyrna, it, its name, it's, it comes from the same root as the Greek word for myrrh. You may remember that myrrh was given to Jesus as a baby. It was one of the three gifts that the, the wise men from the east brought him. Really ironic gift for a newborn because myrrh, among other things, was used as an embalming agent for dead bodies. It was the ancient equivalent to formaldehyde. That, that's what myrrh was. And so Jesus speaks to this church located in this city whose pastor is quite literally going to face death and embalming. And the first thing he says is, I've been where you are going and I have come back from it and I will bring you back as well. And if you believe it, you will act differently than you're acting right now. As I live, you will live also. Furthermore, that experience, he says, vindicates my identity as the first and the last. All right, so while you're in the middle of this, taking one gut punch right after another, going, God, where are you? God, I've tried to be faithful. What are you doing? You need to be reminded that above all of this horrible history you find yourselves in as a church, don't forget you serve the master of that history. I am the first. Everything emanated from me. There is nothing. Isn't that what we're told in John's gospel? Without him, there was not anything made that was made. I am the first. Everything comes from me. I am the last. Everything is eventually going to come back to me. So if we follow him faithfully, we refuse to, to get distracted. You turn away from this misdirection that tells us the church should be a safe place. Be obedient until we see him. We have no need of fear and we have no need of safety and security because we have something better namely a lord who has conquered the grave and will bring us into that same victory that's what he's calling us to here you know I, i've heard people say since i was a kid it's well-meaning but like a lot of christianese sayings it, it's trite and it's stupid the safest place you can be is in the will of god now, i've read the Bible enough times. I've looked at 2,000 years of the history of the church enough to know that as well-intentioned as that statement is, it is just simply not true. It's not. Sometimes, in fact, for most of the world, following Jesus requires tribulation. Sometimes it endures it requires enduring a chronic illness. Sometimes it requires going to dangerous places in the world. Sometimes it requires sending your children into those circumstances. Oh, now I'm meddling, aren't I? got to be careful as a church talking about mission talking about god's love for the world your children might take you seriously they might want to go to an area of that of that world that makes you nervous might want to take your grandkids with them what are you going to say then do you really mean it every sunday almost I, sometimes i forget because i'm not i'm not perfect but every sunday I, I think of the words of the puritan pastor richard baxter he says, I preach 
as never sure to preach again. And as a dying man to dying men. That was a man who apparently knew the message, among other things in Scripture, that, that John and Jesus were communicating to the church at Smyrna. I, I don't, that's, that's the attitude. Every decision you make, this might be the last one, am I going to be faithful to Jesus? Every time I get up here, it might be the last one. I'm not, listen, I, no, I, rumor mill, I'm okay, all right? I'm all right. As far as I know, as far as I know, I am not promised to finish out this day before I see Jesus, and neither are you. And so every single Sunday, it is very possible that it be, might be my very last Sunday because I am not guaranteed those things. I am literally, as I stand before you, a dying man who is literally preaching at this moment to dying men and women. That is a fact. Just as sure as I'm standing here, it's going to come for you one day, and it's going to come to me. The question is not whether I will die. It is whether I will die well. It's whether I will die faithful. Because, because since it's inevitable, right? And listen, I don't, I don't think about this all the time. I'm not morbid. Neither should you, all right? Planning your funeral when you're in your 30s. It, I'm not talking about that kind of stuff, okay? Listen, I, I got plans. I, I'm eating healthier than I used to. I'm exercising more regularly than I used to because I've got plans. I intend not to be foolish, to try to live as long as I can. I'd love to see and play with grandchildren one day. I, I've got actually, uh, during the snow, when the staff weren't coming in and everything, I spent all day Wednesday and all day Thursday, I wrote an entire message that's coming up about eight weeks from now, and I finished out three different sermon series, at least the general outline for those, for submission to our elders next week. And if they agree, that means the, the preaching schedule is locked in all the way through August. I've got plans. I, I just don't have any guarantee that I'm going to be able to do them, and neither do you. So the question is for your next decision. For your next decision, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? Because since death is inevitable, that means only one thing really matters. On the other side of that, am I going to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant? Some of you may, may need to come to him today for the very first time because you, you just don't know him and declare your allegiance to the one who calls himself the first and the last and the one who, even through texts like this, has told you up front, if you follow me, it's probably going to cost you. But it's worth the cost. Will you do that today? Will you come to Jesus today? If you're in this room, find an elder, a deacon, somebody with a lanyard. Tell them you want to know Jesus. If you're watching online, go to Connect to Covenant. Let us know through those electronic means. I want to know what it means to follow Jesus. Be faithful unto death. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He has conquered that too. And if you follow him faithfully, he will bring you back as well. Lord Jesus, thank you for a message that is sometimes difficult in a culture that values comfort and convenience and safety. Father, I just pray for men and women of courage to rise up from a moment like this. 
to be the men and the women of God that you have called them to be. I thank you for so many in this body who already display precisely this kind of courage. And Father, they're, they're willing to expose themselves to danger. They're willing, Lord, not to be reckless, but Lord, to be intentional about the mission of God. And Father, as we move forward together, make us wise in our choices. And Lord, by your Holy Spirit, give us courage to move forward. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.